Fog DAO is a group of builders and investors bringing you the best content on how new technologies can be used to make better games. Enjoy the show. GM friends, and welcome to the future of gaming. You're listening to our weekly podcasts. We're recording this where I am on the morning of the 29th of November. We've got the usual crew, which you'll happy to see, Philip Collins, Devin Becker, and myself, Nico Vreke. Um, today, we're discussing the Phoenix game games race, and um, in general, fundraising for gaming or Web3 gaming more specifically um, in post-FTX collapse times. And um, a little bit more than a week ago, I was at Slush, and there's some uh, interesting takeaways that I took from there that I'd like to discuss with the dudes. Um, but first, Phil... I think you did a, a great job talking to board Elon on the on on last week's episode, man. I was uh, very impressed. I missed a bit of the the European accents, but uh, <laughs> you Americans did a good job. I was I was, I was uh, pointing that out to to see if you actually listened to it, Nico. That was my that was my test for you. But no, I was trying to I was trying out the the host position. I'm not I'm not used to that. I usually like to to leave that to you, but glad it glad it went well, dude. Anytime you like, you did an amazing job. So if you want to do that more often, I I would highly uh, recommend you doing that, and I'd be happy to uh, to support you in any way. Cool, appreciate it. All right, let's dive in. Phoenix Games. I I did not actually like. I didn't look look this up. I didn't dig into this. So um, what happens, Phil? You want to give us a, a summary? Yeah, high level. Um, Phoenix Games raised 150 million dollars. They're they're setting up a, a blockchain publishing um, business and basically bringing in new blockchain games and also using some of that funding to port over existing web two games to, to web three and, and trying to attract audiences over that way. I thought this was particularly interesting just because of the, the current fundraising environment, which we can get into a little bit more. I think when we see things that are classified in roughly the series A range, still raising $150 million, going back to, to what we saw with Limit Break, it always just kind of raises eyebrows of what's going on in the background. Um, obviously, uh, uh, from the publisher perspective, uh, the, the risk is a little bit diversified. And so I guess that's a longer term capital allocation strategy towards a space that that the group's are really bullish in. Um, the, the funding came from Cypher Capital and Phoenix Group, which are you know, two interconnected um, interconnected bodies. But just thought it was really interesting to, to see this type of, of fundraising, given all of the, the craziness that, that we're currently experiencing and just the, the general market sentiment around VCs and, and corporates in, in terms of expanding beyond the core competencies. It seems like a lot of groups are just doubling down into what they know and, and trying to stay afloat versus pursuing these, these new types of new types of projects. What should we know Phoenix group from? What's that? You know, some of the people from mythical mm -hmm. games. Uh, so there was that sort of exodus of a few different, you know, execs from mythical games. And this is where they ended up. That's why there was that kind of like new ventures. They were all kind of hinting at and stuff like that. So that's where, you know, at least those people from. Yeah. And, but, but tell me about Phoenix group. What do they do? I'm less familiar with them. I think they actually they're, they're Middle Eastern based. I think they actually produce a lot of mining hardware. I could be totally wrong, so okay. so correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm going off of off of memory there, but I believe that's that's kind of their background. So they don't do anything with games specifically. I don't believe it's a gaming related entity. I think it's more on like the the purely crypto side, and I know Cipher Capital's done a lot of of fundraising or of, of funding in the, in the blockchain gaming 
uh, space. They're also based out of out of Dubai. And who are the people who started this company? Because you don't raise 150 million Series A in these times, or in general, even in in the best times, even if you're a nobody. So, who, can you tell us more? What do we know about the founders of this this company? Yeah, I think the the founders come from from gaming backgrounds. I'm honestly less familiar with the team here. It seems like it's kind of like a a strategic rollout from from the Phoenix organization, but honestly, less less familiar with the the founding team on this one. Yeah, a lot of the people from Mythical come with the more of the gaming background, I think. Uh, and that's probably why they were, you know, involved heavily to to help on the gaming side of things. I think there was a bit of a varied background business-wise. Um, but I think from what I understand, there might have been a little bit of a of a riff kind of generated in um, uh, Mythical. And that kind of led to a forking off with these guys wanting to kind of go do their own thing. Uh, and it does make me curious, though, because this was like right before Mythical also did their layoffs that I wonder if like Blinkos isn't actually working out, for example. And that's one of like the mm. big kind of projects coming in, especially on Epic Games and stuff like that. So it's interesting to see like if if that wasn't what these guys wanted to do, what do they want to do that's so different that they wanted to go and go off doing something else? And that'll be interesting to see is to find out like what what ideas did they have that they're so bullish that they're able to raise uh, 150 uh, you know, as a publisher slash developer slash whatever they want to end up doing and kind of treating it as a fund. Um, so they must have some initial ideas, right? Like they don't jump ship from Mythical without at least an idea of like what they want to build or some specific like vision for that. But that being said, I don't know about the other people involved if they actually come up with that same vision or they just see an opportunity for a VC raise and they're just like, cool, like I want to be part of that. Because, uh, you know, you got a lot of this funding coming from you know, VCs and, and other capital groups that have like this money to deploy anyways. And maybe they thought, well, we'll get in some people, some pedigree, you know, that, that, you know, some, sometimes is a placeholder for due diligence. Right. So uh, if these people came in, they're like, okay, cool. Well, these mythical people came in, they launched a quote unquote successful blockchain product. They know web three stuff. They know how to make it accessible. They know how to work with platforms like Epic, like these people can make it happen. So I'd be interested also to see if they're planning on with that publishing model to put on, uh, put it on places like Epic and actually get it in like legit distribution as opposed to like, you know, websites and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Before we get into fundraising today, I'd love to have your thoughts on the opportunity of Web3 publishing. Um, you know, Phil, you, you look at infrastructure, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of assuming that the publisher model fits within that, right? I'm curious to have your thoughts. Is this something that you think within the Web3 versus Web2 has more opportunity? Um, and, and generally, how are you thinking around that? Yeah, I think I think of it pretty similarly to to Web2 in a lot of ways, where it's basically a way to, to diversify your content risk. And so we've definitely seen a lot of Web3 publishers I think the the tough thing about Web3 publishing today is just the fact that buying up a bunch of content that doesn't have a clear audience in the in the immediate term is is kind of hard to do. Um, where yes, you can you can aggregate a bunch of IPs, and yes, it's a good way of porting traditional games over to Web3 um, and and again diversifying that like single content risk and trying to be that hit breakout game. It feels like a lot of a lot of players are are really geared towards that and being that the breakout publisher that has the the first IP that succeeds in Web three gaming and like that's kind of their flag in the ground that they're trying to plant. Um, but at the end of the day, kind of view it similar to Web two gaming in the long in the long term, um, where there's there's going to be value in a in a few IPs and it's going to let these groups experiment and there's probably hopefully one or two of those that become genuine franchises. Um, and you know, that's kind of, 
economics aside from a, from a web three standpoint, like that, I think that's the, that's the goal. So I think success in, in web three publishing is going to look a lot like a lot like web two publishing in, in the end over the long can, term. It could be a pretty big value add for web three for a couple different reasons though. Cause if you look at like some of the traditional reasons why like indie gamers, for example, benefit from going to a publisher model, even though like originally, you know, games started trying to move away from that. Cause they were like, publishers are bad, whatever. But then realized, of course, like, you know, the, the more crowded the space gets and things like that, the more you need the publisher's help for, you know, whether you consider it user acquisition or just straight up marketing and, and getting in front of people's eyeballs, especially when there's no main distribution platform for Web3 kind of stuff yet. Mm-hmm. And you've got battles over that right now. Like I was just talking about Epic, but also Apple's take on things and stuff like that. But also even the fundraising side, like when I talk to a lot of game developers in Web3, they spend so much of their time in the fundraising side and dealing with that. And they're not building at the same time. They can't. Like, it's really hard to be building at the same time. You're pitching and trying to do all that stuff. And I think a publisher could really help with that, for example. So if you, mm-hmm. you we've got such a small pool of talent out there and then like a lot of different ideas and stuff like that. And I think a smart publisher that can kind of cherry pick some really good talent with a really good idea and then help handle a lot of the other stuff uh, a lot of the logistics, maybe some early financing, doing some fundraising, some handling some of the marketing, stuff like that. So that the builders can focus on building, I think, will mm. be something that will help speed things up. Because right now we've got this long development cycle for some of these higher quality games. Uh, and I think this is like potentially an opportunity for a publisher who really knows their stuff to actually help accelerate uh, some some good quality games coming out. But I don't know about the knows their stuff part, right? Because again, the lack mm-hmm. of talent means like, if you get in people, like, say, for example, what they're doing, pulling in mythical people, you pull in some people with experience and knowledge of the industry and having something successfully published in that space and even on a store, like, I think that'll be valuable to actually helping other people kind of, like, bring up everything. It's like kind of bootstrapping. Uh, now, that being said, obviously, publishers also, like, you know, sometimes make dumb decisions. They they tend to manipulate products. Like, that's, it's not all good. But they do they do bring some value to games that I think if, Web3 needs to grow, like it's it's going to need publishers to do that because there's just so much new learning for a lot of these uh, like smaller blockchain developers that are in it for the tech first and then and moving into games. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I liked what you said about the the current big distribution platforms like Epic Game Store, Steam, etc. Um, and I could definitely see an edge for a well-organized publisher to, you know, get easy access to content because the content would not be able to get published on these bigger platforms if they didn't use a publisher. So I can definitely see an edge there. Um, it was also, also portals. Sorry. <laughs> Reminds me of flash portal days. Yeah. Well, I guess that you, that's when you were in the industry. I wasn't yet, but I can, I can see that. So it'd be the same way. Um, yeah. I, I also wonder if, and, and this is an angle that I see quite a lot is people building not explicitly a publisher, but it's more like a almost a game launcher platform with a mm-hmm. high focus on the, on interoperability. Wondering if you guys think that the whole concept of interoperability makes for you know more opportunity in a publisher um, environment or when you're building building a publisher, because theoretically, if you do that well, you could see some you know interoperable interoperable game assets maybe not like things that you can use in game but like cross game achievements these types of things um within that publisher space which you know should make the network effects of a publisher stronger than they are in the web2 world just wondering if if you guys see that or is that is that just a pipe dream that you think is 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 overhyped i've definitely seen that with publishers like specifically that i've talked to like they're definitely a lot of publishers interested in the idea of trying to keep 
people within their ecosystem of games. And like we saw even, for example, like in the, the, the mobile space, uh, a lot of games realizing they needed to cross promote and do other things like that over time because fresh UA trying to pull people from other games outside of their, their wheelhouse and, uh, outside of games in general is, is very difficult and expensive. And the more you can keep people within your, you know, keep the people retained within your space. Obviously, this is a bigger thing for hyper casual than mm-hmm. anything else, right? Because they churn people quickly. But in general, like people tend to bounce around. And if you actually have them with an invested asset that they feel that they have ownership of, and you could use that as a thing that ties them or sort of like chains them to your ecosystem, obviously publishers are looking at that as something they're really excited about. Like, hey, we can keep people within our space. Yes, they could. It's 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 really like ironic because you're you're selling you're saying, hey, you can sell your thing and leave my ecosystem even easier now. But in doing so, it actually has the reverse effect of making people feel like they own the thing more and therefore a little more tied to wanting to get, because they, they endow the endowment effect where they uh, add a sense of value to something they already possess above and beyond the market value a lot of times. And so like that will keep people within that ecosystem. Now, that being said, I think we're really early on the economic side of that. I think the economic side of that is is very poorly fleshed out at the moment in terms of like lack of real good examples. A lot of people saying they want to do it and proposing to do it and having it in their plans, but no one proving they can execute on that in a way that doesn't have a down effect on other games within the same ecosystem, right? Like, so we don't have games doing that successfully yet. So we're still early. Yeah. I think on the, on the point of being early, the most of the teams that I've seen trying to act as quote unquote publishers that are, that are also, pushing interoperability or looking more like the hyper casual model than, than, you know, full scale publishers trying to promote genuine crossover and cross selling between their games where, you know, you have relatively simplistic games and and maybe we'll say you have five to 10 that you're planning to build internally. You are also planning to be the distribution platform. Um, whether that's, you know, having like a web web based ecosystem where all these games are, are, you know, cross pollinated or through, through your own, like, downloadable launcher that you're building. But it seems like most of the games I've seen that are trying to pursue this are, you know, maybe a max of three month life cycles for the players. And then you try to just move them on to your next title. And so, you know, you buy an asset in in game A and then it's usable in game B and then it's usable in game C. And um, I think seeing that genuinely take off across full scale games is probably going to take a couple or a few years to, to really see that because that requires you to build multiple full scale games games that are, are worth having assets crossover. Um, but for, for the most part, I feel like I'm seeing more of like that hyper casual approach where it's like purely on the retention side. Let's just make sure people aren't leaving our, our wall to garden. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the large publishers in the traditional gaming world would have a similar feeling of just keeping people in your wall to garden as long as possible. The, the funny thing is you hear it actually a lot. It just most people label it as a metaverse. Yeah. We're, we're going to make a metaverse around it, whether whether they're treating that on the IP side or the game economy, like game you know interoperability side. That's where, like, so you're hearing it all the time. You're just hearing it as metaverse instead mm-hmm. of interoperability within a publisher environment. It's interesting, right? Because having the metaverse implies this virtual world where you can walk around and show off your shit, right? <laughs> and that in itself has so little value. Mm-hmm. I keep seeing these metaverse pitches where it's like, yo. We're building a place where brands can buy their own buildings and have virtual shops. Mm-hmm. And then our question is, sorry, my cat's freaking out. I'm chilling with my cat on my desk and this now I just had his head butt in my face. Um, apologies. So um, 
What were we talking about? I am metaverse and brands. And so my question always is, why would people hang out in your metaverse, mm -hmm. right? What we just discussed was this publisher model where you have different games. Games are a reason to do something, right? But then what's the advantage of having a, you know, virtual environment and, and world that you can walk around in between games with brands or even without brands? Why would you do that? Why would you not just click a logo on the website or on the launcher and just hop into that game? Um I don't know. Is are are we are we too boomer to see the Ready Player One potential? What do you think? Malls, malls were the 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 ultimate example of that happening in Meat Space, where there was actually a place that was just entirely commercial, yet people would hang out there. Now that had a limited time window, right? Malls aren't necessarily mm -hmm. hang out anymore, but that's like an example of like if you could go back and capture what worked about that make it work maybe you could figure it out i'm not saying you can pour malls over because there's that's been tried before like over time time over time they've tried to like we'll create a virtual mall in the in, the, in cyberspace <laughs> back when it was called cyberspace right uh and so like it's you know it's been tried before but i think we have examples of it and i think also people are thinking in terms of like fortnite the way the fortnite lobbies turned into their own thing and stuff like that where a game kind of uh morphed into a sort of metaverse but they're often forgetting the game part was why people came in the first place. They didn't come there to show off their Fortnite avatars. They came there to play the game and then as a coincidence, showed off their Fortnite avatars. And uh, and yeah, a lobby isn't a metaverse. I think is a summary at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think, Nico, I totally agree with you where every time somebody comes to me and talks about a metaverse, my first question is like, what are people doing in this space? And I think a lot of the brand first metaverses just don't have the pull that a platform like a Roblox, for example, which has done brand integrations really well because the players are already there because there's already something else to do. But when you talk about like brand first experiences and creating a, a digital space for brands to have these shops or experiences, like there's no hook for somebody to come there. And so I just instantly kind of, discount the ability to, to compel users to be there. Um, you know, brand integrations work really well when it's platform users already know and love, but it's hard to, to make brands attract those people. I, I just don't see the, the pull. Yeah. hundred percent. It's, um, and also I've seen so many and so little differentiation that's right. Building the best metaverse, whether it's like the smoothest or like the, the most polished, um, for me is not enough at this point of a differentiator to actually get people to hang out in whatever you're building, right? I think um, malls is an interesting comparison. I'm I'm pretty sure I can find like a few reasons why, you know, these things are different. Um, like one that immediately came to mind was that the switching costs or the switching the time switching time between going from place A to place B when you're doing like shopping is pretty high because you have to like move in meat space, right? You have to walk around, use your feet. And so in a mall, it makes sense to like, if, if it, that's really short, it's just like creates this reason to be there. Like when you're on your computer, right? When, you, when you're anywhere else, it's different because you can, the switching time is is minimal. So anyway, that's one reason. Um, that being said, I'm, I'm not definitely not discounting the full thing. Um, I wanted to, um, to pull this discussion and towards fundraising in general, right? Um, you know, we started this conversation with Phoenix Games raising 150 million Series A, which I did not expect to use in one sentence this week, or I would say post, uh, you know, FTX collapse. Would love to understand, well, maybe Phil, from your perspective um, as a VC, how do you look at the fundraising environment right now? Um, what advice do you give to teams in these, you know, still uncertain weeks, right? If you're doing a round right now, it's it's not easy. Um, yeah. 
Like, what, what's your perspective as a VC, and, and what would you recommend to, to teams? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just hard to raise right now, right? I think that's like the the headline is it's difficult, and it's difficult for almost everyone. I think there's there's unique situations like Phoenix, which is I think is a, a vast outlier and should not be represent like not should not make people feel like their difficulty raising is is a problem for for their company or for them necessarily. It's just it's just difficult, and everyone's being a little more hesitant. Everyone's trying to just play a little bit more of a wait and see game of where's the market going, what's happening, and it is shifting from in time a time of you know incredibly uh, founder friendly types of types of rounds to to a more investor friendly environment because investors now have more time there's a little more leverage on valuations um, you you are able to do more thorough diligence processes and, and kind of really really dig into companies rather than being rushed in like 48 hour processes which felt like it was happening on a weekly basis back in back in mid late 2021 and and so I think that there's just like a, a readjustment period and expectations on both sides and we're, we're, we're finding uh, you know, common ground in the middle. And I think expectations are shifting, but it's taking time because it is a different type of experience raising capital today than it was even six, 12 months ago. Um, so I think that's kind of the situation from our perspective. And that's just across the board. I mean, that's, that's not even just web three, right? That's, that's gaming. That's other sectors across venture. That's just everything right now. Nothing is, nothing is really easy to raise for at the moment. Um, that's just kind of how it is. Um, on, on the advice side, I think what, what we, what we've seen a lot of is just trying to make sure that, that teams aren't raising in like distress situations of, of, you know, you have two months of runway left. Let's, let's raise a quick round. You know, I think people are raising earlier in their life cycle and raising before it's even necessary just to have a buffer so that they can stay alive, um, throughout 2023 and into 2024 and hopefully ride out the, the market downturn, however long that ends up lasting, but at least having a shot to build the product that you want to build. And so I think just being proactive on like capital management is going to be really big, especially for, for a lot of web three companies that are managing their treasuries across, across crypto cryptocurrencies as well as their USD. Um, but I mean, it is, it is also, I know everyone says it, like it is a great time to build a lot of products. I mean, capital raising aside, you know, building products, iterating on them, getting, getting community feedback, you know, that hasn't changed. I feel like that part is still just as, just as alive as it's ever been. And, um, you know, capital needs aside, you know, building, building product and, and making something, very relevant to the next wave is, is exactly what we saw from from some of the more successful Web3 gaming startups of the, the last cycle and, and building throughout all the chaos. So I think we're just encouraging people to keep going, but you know, manage your manage your capital wisely and, and stay afloat. That's kind of the, the game most people are playing. Have you seen uh, companies take drastic measures or are you recommending companies taking drastic measures when it comes to burn rates, headcounts, et cetera? Yeah, I think we're we're trying to get a lot of our companies to to get through kind of like early 2024 um, if possible, and so there's definitely been been cases of of burn rate reductions, and I think we're seeing that not even just across early stage venture, but across you know layoffs at every at every stage, you know up from up to up to Meta and other large scale public tech companies trying to do the same thing, and so. I think a lot of hard decisions are being made right now. Um, there's going to be a lot of really good talent on the market to, to support these startups. But yeah, definitely seeing people make those decisions just out of purely out of necessity and you know, something they don't want to do and they wish they didn't have to do. But 
you know, if they if they need to extend nine months into to fifteen or eighteen, it's just a matter of 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 a numbers game and and getting to a point where they feel like they can justifiably raise raise around because at the end of the day like as you go up the stack from c to a to b the expectations are just getting higher and it's going to be harder to raise those rounds and being able to raise an a or even a b off of purely a narrative feels like it's kind of falling out of favor and you have to show something um it doesn't mean you have to be a fully mature company but the the standards are are rising pretty quickly and having the time to show the to show off what you've been able to accomplish is 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 the new the new baseline for, for performance. Yeah. <clears throat> One of the companies we funded earlier this year at a board meeting a few weeks ago. And, uh, they were like, yeah, um, we still have 52 months of, of burn rate, uh, of, of uh, <laughs> runway. And I was like, oh, feels so good. Right. Yeah. Uh, that is just generally good news. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, I think indeed prudence is key right now. Check their um, proof of reserves. Yeah, that's also true. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. Because anyone anyway. can say they have 52 months left, but... Yeah. I find it so fascinating where, from an investor perspective, as Warren says, as Warren Buffett says, um, you know, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful will when others are greedy. That was harder than it should have been. Sorry. Um, and it's so interesting where it feels like it's almost different within a VC scenario than it is from a public markets in a public market scenario. Cause ironically, you know, I, I like you want to be hyper aggressive, but within the VC space, there's direct competition between VCs, which in when times are more tough, everyone seems to agree like, yo, let's take it slower. Don't have to push on evaluations. Um, but theoretically the money's still there, right? And uh, the, the, the funds are still there capital needs to be deployed sort of mm-hmm. um but still it's it's it has such a major impact it's uh, it's just fascinating to me yeah and it's definitely been more impacted at the at the later stages where at the end of the day like seed seed rounds are still going to happen right like good founders mm-hmm. with good ideas at the seed stage like your your uh, your only real impact on the market side is the valuations and the expectations of investors for terms but i think we're still seeing a lot of really interesting seed deals get done. And as you get to later stage, things are much more closed off, especially as IPR, IPO markets are effectively shut right now. And later stage investors are seeing it like the CDE stage. There's just no real like liquidity opportunity in the next 12 to potentially you know 24, maybe even 36 months. And so as you mature, it gets later. But by the time most of the seed companies we're seeing are at the stage where they're having their series CD conversations, um, by then, the, the markets are likely at least reg, like regulating or correcting themselves. So I think we'll continue to see a lot of that where really early stage is, is continuing to move forward, even if the terms aren't as favorable um, to, to founders. But it's still it's still happening. Um, like those markets are opening. And like you mentioned, there's capital that has to be deployed on on some kind of timeline. So it's it's there and, and it will get deployed. It's just a matter of when and to who. The problem is though we're we're seeing I'm still seeing tons of investment go to uh stuff that doesn't even have the tokenomics figured out yet that's barely mm. an advancement over what Axie did like because no one's figured it out yet there's no destination to measure by right so everyone's just like well as long as you've moved past Axie and it's like well if you stepped two steps past it that's not solving anything yet but it seems like it is right or they'll start to figure out the keywords that VCs want to see well there's this deflationary pressure from this or like you know it's sustainable because of this and they just throw the words in there right like 
and just kind of pay tribute to the ideas of the things that, that VCs want to hear. And because no one's figured it out, no one's going like, well, this is absolutely how it should be. And so like, you can't even really do due diligence if there's not even like a lot of people at these VCs that, that really understand enough of the problems of the current designs to be like, I don't know about that. And so you do due diligence on the teams and stuff like that. But on the sustainability side, it still seems so immature in terms of actually properly evaluating the economic designs. And like normally, you know, with a normal game, you don't have to care that much about that, right? But obviously this is very economics-centric. If it was just a mobile game, you'd be like, well, what does the market look like? What's the, what's the TAM, you know? And you could just go off of the the usual kind of suspects because games have been around forever. Like you you kind of understand the market, but the Web3 side of it because, it, because the investors are investing in a way that the economic side matters, uh, from in terms of like token values and stuff, instead of like units sold and things like that, uh, it becomes much more complicated for them to actually properly evaluate their investment. Like if it was just, oh, can we get return on our investment because people spend X amount of money in IAP? Cool, like that is actually very easy to understand. Like you can look at the market, you can look at what's likely to sell, you can look at uh, stuff out there and get an idea like, will this actually likely get some kind of demand? Is there enough market for it? Cool. And you can properly evaluate that stuff, I think, because there's enough measuring tools for that to at least ballpark it. Whereas now, like, I think just based off the, the white papers and pitch decks and stuff that I see still, I'm like, I'm, I, I, I feel hesitant to ever give a thumbs up on any of them. Like when mm-hmm. people ask for my opinion, it's like, maybe, but honestly, I see this, this, and this, and this, and this, but like, good luck. I hope it works out for you. But honestly, I just see this being like another failure, but maybe taking a little longer than others. And, uh, and I don't have the answers to say like, just, just do this and that'll, that'll fix it. Right. Obviously I try and steer things in the right direction, but at this point it's uncharted waters. Like, and you don't know where the reefs are and anything else. So it's like, Hey, this is open sea, hopefully, uh, kind of to, to continue the terrible, uh, maritime metaphor. Um, uh, but I, what I, what I find interesting too, though, is that having lived through the whole dot-com era and like the early internet days through all that stuff and seeing kind of like some of the parallels and be, you know, having been around when everyone was like, oh, the internet will never catch on and all that kind of stuff, like that skepticism and stuff. And, uh, and then what happened with the dot-com boom, what I'm waiting for is that kind of consolidation phase that happened after, right? Because like there was, there was a lot of victims of the dot-com boom, but there was also a lot of people that came out stronger and people that doubled down and invested in stuff and, you know, and uh, just bought up all the competition they could and stuff like that and actually became, you know, huge. You see to look at like Microsoft or Amazon or some of these other ones that came out big out of it. Obviously those are most obvious examples, but I'm sure there was tons of small ones. Even look at what happened with ISPs and stuff, the way they all consolidated. So I'm wondering if we might start to see some of the VC or publishing uh, companies start to become that consolidator, like something like we saw with Embracer, where they start Mm -hmm. to like snatch up these games that maybe like don't have like uh, enough runway anymore or aren't able to really take it all the way that they need to, but they had a really good idea and some good talent. And so some of these publishers are like, well, I'm going to take the easy approach. I've got some VC money left because it needs to be deployed. And I see there's talent here and I see there's a potential, but it's likely to fail on its own. Let's go ahead and scoop that up and then scoop up competitors and stuff like that. I mean, that's part of why FTX failed is, is because they were scooping up all the distressed assets and stuff like that. They just did it in a really bad way. But I think that is likely to happen. We're likely at some point here to have that consolidation phase where people start snatching up the things that just aren't surviving but have potential. And I think that'll be an interesting sign for like when we're kind of in that low point before we come back up again and things like start to really like hit and you have some big hits out of that. And it might be like, I don't know if we're in that cycle or not, right? Because we keep going through these 
uh, ups and downs with crypto where we have these crypto winters, but it's almost like almost like real seasons where we have it so frequently. It's like, is it like every real winter? We just have it every two years or something? Like blue moons? Uh, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of weird how frequently we've called kind of the same cycle over and over when obviously it's, it's probably not the same cycle, but we don't really know overall where we are in this technology roadmap right now because we, we just have glimpses of the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting discussion. Do you you mentioned that quite often you you see white papers and you're like, yo, these tokenomics they haven't figured it out at all. Um, this could bring us into like a whole like road of talking about how important tokenomics are for a game. But I'm just curious to like um, to understand whether you mean that like how important do you think a tokenomics design is for the success of a game? And how like malleable is it? As in, like, how, like from your experience, how easy would it be to say, like, oh shit, like as an experiment, we've done this t- approach to tokenomics, and then we kind of messed it up, so we're changing it. W- what are your thoughts on that, Devin? So, I mean, from from the history of multiplayer games, if there's a multiplayer game with a multiplayer economy, when that economy tanks, it takes the game down with it. Like that's just been the history of games it's very rare for a game to survive an economic problem that brings it down like this whether it be mmos um or any kind of other multiplayer economy uh it brings it down with it because it it skews the gameplay so much because so many of the game's loops are tied in the economic loops that it that it changes players motivations it changes how people behave it changes engagement and retention it you th- you'd think it wouldn't but i mean we look at real life look at how the economy drives everyone's real world behavior even though technically it's supposed to be this abstract thing that just helps us exchange value but at the end of the day it's so intertwined and it's more so with web 3 and the the other part that i think exacerbates it is the investors are tied into that as well if investors were taking equity or looking at profit-based models more often and less around token-based models it'd be less of a concern but the problem is with investors invested into the tokenomics they cash out and that directly affects the game's economy that is a problem. Like until we move away from that, I think it's always going to be semi-toxic investment in some way, unless handled well. You've got to like put on double layers of oven mitts to try and make that not hurt your game's economy to handle that, because you're intertwining now the investor's ability to make profit directly at the player's expense rather mm-hmm. than at the game company's expense. Uh, and so I think we need to move past all that stuff because, like I said, it we have a history of games failing when their economy fails with it. And, and, you know, I'm sure even the, the, the Eve people that you spoke to recently, you know, leading towards the, the, the slush discussion here, uh, have seen that, right? Like they've seen like a lot of struggles. I imagine with Eve, whenever the economy really suffered, like they had to really like crap, we've got to like fix this. And they had full-time economists on staff. Like they take it very, very seriously and they still struggle because it's still semi uncharted charted territory. Even though, even though we've like explored a bit of the depths, there's still so much left that we haven't figured out because most people in games have just stayed away from open economies. They've gone, you know what? We haven't figured it out. It's failed too many times. Let's not touch it. It wasn't until the excitement around Web3 stuff, people were willing to go back into that space and just go out into the wasteland and hope they could survive it again. And a lot of people are going to die along the way. It's like when we're going west in the US here, there's an Oregon Trail moment for open economies. And uh, you know, the people that make it there, they might strike gold, but a lot of people are going to die along the way. My metaphors mm-hmm. are terrible today. I apologize. I appreciate it. No, I think um, you're very right. Which brings us into me shilling the episode I did 
earlier this week with Hilmar. Um, Hilmar is the CEO of CCP Games. You said, Devin, you said people at EVE Online. He's a CEO, man. Come on. Uh, anyway, um, There's a lot he's, uh, there. he's an amazing dude. Um, met him at Slush. And yeah, he has, he's like, he's been running probably the most complex virtual economy in the world for 20 years now. So he, he understands this shit. And as you said, they have full-time economists on staff. Um, and the interesting that we, we can have a whole discussion about learnings from in, and insights from there. I wanted to, to first give a recap of Slush. So first of all, um, Web3 is not the cool kid on the block anymore. So last year I was also at Slush and then, you know, Web3 was everything people talked about. But now I think um, it seems like AI is taking the crown, the whole hype around the Dolly um, models and, and the potential of that uh, seems something that people are very interested in. Um, so that's that's what, what people are thinking is cool. Um, we also had a, a fantastic FogDAO meetup in the morning. Um, we had like I don't know, 12 people there or something from different companies. And what I really liked is that like they're all legit builders, no speculators. Um, and yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that. It was, uh, some, some great talks. David took a picture and the picture please does not represent how excited people were because we all look, look bored out of our mind on that picture. Just, 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 just a, a picture thing. <laughs> um, and finally, the, the last thing I, I wanted to discuss, and this this um, is is what I'd like to the the last part of this this episode to, to be about is, um, I did about six months ago in the an episode on the Metacast with a dude named Justin Glibert, of Glibert, or um, the way you should pronounce it, Justin Glibert. He's a super young dude, um, and he's heading up um, Zero X Park. Zero X Park is a foundation slash institute and they're building like they're pushing forward the idea of of ethereum which is like this decentralized computer but with a focus on games slash virtual worlds they're the creators of dark forest which is probably the best known um on-chain game out there and so the guy gave a talk um we've touched upon this i i mentioned that what they've built is an engine for on-chain games and using that they've built minecraft but on the blockchain, which means that you can um, essentially every block that you mine is a transaction. Every block that you place is a transaction. Everyone plays on the same world. Um, yeah, that's essentially w what it what it is, how it works. They've built that. And he gave me an anecdote that still blows me away. So MUD was out like the game. It's it's called OP Craft or for Optimism because it's built on Optimism. So OP Craft is the Minecraft on chain. And so it was out for two weeks. And after two weeks, someone had built a um, sort of cult where people could they give could give all their assets to the cult. And at that moment, they became part of that cult, which meant that everyone in the cult essentially had the same inventory. So imagine you're playing Minecraft and the inventory is the same for everyone because it's all shared. So every time you mine a block, it's only available to everyone. Um, by the way, the name of this cult was communism, which... Kind of makes sense if you listen to listen, think about it. And so, um, you know, the moment you joined communism, you became a comrade, right? Your name changed to comrade with a number. And you, there were like the comrades were ranked. Like the more you added to the, you know, collective inventory, the better you did. 
they've built some insane statues together because like diamonds I think were still like the most rare um, block because it's a, a simple version of, of Minecraft and so they built like huge statues because they had a shit ton of, 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 of diamonds and so it took two weeks for a completely new like social system to emerge on top of this game and this reminded me of a uh, part of the podcast with Hilmar that we did um, so I would recommend listening to that as well um, where he describes that one of the unlocks that CCP made with EVE Online was introducing um, different ways of people to work together. So within EVE Online, you have like corporations, you have like factions, you have like different layers of, of social structure. And they also introduced like APIs to manage these social layers, like APIs to govern who can access what and who can do what and, and so on. And so... This has led to a bunch of immersion gameplays where he describes that, you know, what what makes what actually wins the game is almost at this point like HR management and logistics of who has the better non-Eve tools, like separate tools, to manage everything that's going on within the game. Um and so, you know, what I what I learned from there from that is that one introducing like social new social layers. Um, brings immersion gameplay and so I think in a lot of games it is the social side of the game that makes it like deep and fun and engaging mm -hmm. second learning I have is that what Eve did is they responded to demands from players for introducing potential for these emergent layers by introducing these you know faction system and the corporation system like different different um, mechanics um, and, and the, these APIs The third learning I have is that they still had to introduce these APIs and they still had to introduce the ways for people to create new social dynamics. And that brings me to my fourth learning and that is that maybe this is what will make um, on-chain games stand out from other games or maybe even non not necessarily on-chain games but more broadly Web3 games where because a lot of this happens on this public ledger, which is programmable. You can actually, like, there's no gatekeepers anymore to either allow people to change stuff or give people the tools to change stuff. You, Anyone can build whatever tools they want. And so maybe the big unlock here is that if you have a um, half-decent game, which, you know, if you would take away the social layer from EVE Online, it's, it's a really good game, right? But it's like, there might be other games that are similarly good, but the social layer is what sets it apart. This is a hypothesis, right? I'm not saying that that's definitely the case. We can discuss about it. But maybe, um, you know, a good on-chain game, that's a good game in itself. The big unlock there will be that, you know, the adding the social layers and the social dynamics and different hierarchies, um, anyone can do it. They can do it in any way you want. Um, this might be, you know, the big unlock where, you know, something like, something like communism can be created in World of Warcraft. And you can, uh, at some point, have like these communism versus versus capitalism um, fights and, and, and factions, and we start really recreating the, the 20th century, essentially. Um, and uh, anyway, so yeah, that's that's my, my long rant. Uh, would love to get your takes on, on that. Hope hope I made a bit of sense. Yeah, it did. No, I think I... Think I When I talk about Web3 games a lot, I think the and I think I've said this in past episodes that we've done, but this concept of the metagame is really interesting and and 
the social aspects or the political aspects adding value to on, on-chain assets or, or in-game items. And I think other groups that have done this in an interesting way are people like Block Lords, right? Where that's that's an element of it of it there as well. And and so I am excited to see how, how Web3 is able to facilitate things that are not directly related to the assets, but are still providing value to a game ecosystem and the individual assets you own by being strategic in a way that's not even necessarily part of the game user interface that you're that you're inter- interacting with that's uh it's a it's a cool concept yeah i think the the big thing that eve did different than the other mmos because other mmos did similar things right in world of warcraft had plenty of apis people built all kinds of stuff around it the social aspects are generally the end games etc what made eve different was designing permissiveness of different kinds of social behavior into the gameplay so when when they came out the policy of well, two things one single server only, meaning everyone has to live together. I think, and that's one of their pillars, right? Is that we have to do it one big server, right? Can't It can't be this distributed thing where people can just jump to another shard or whatever. And, and the second thing was that pretty much whatever was not breaking the game's rules itself, like the code rules, like isn't hacking, is pretty much allowed. And, you know, they can, they can tweak the game to respond to certain things that might be abused, but they, they're not explicitly censoring behavior. They, they can censor behavior by changing the game's design, which is like a soft way of adjusting the governmental policies. But with, it's like a government without a police in a way. Like they're, they're adjusting the, the way people behave based off economic design or game design around like the, even the AI characters or the way that the universe is distributed or the types of technology that's allowed in the, in the systems for that. But that's all a way of like being semi-permissive. So that goes kind of to your point of the, the more permissive systems like the blockchain being, you know, more next generation, allowing, because, yeah, we, we want to say like, oh, we don't want to allow bad actors. We don't want bad behavior, blah, blah, blah. But if you design that, if you bake it into it and say like, this is okay implicitly, it's not outside of the game, then it starts to incorporate a lot more expansion of the social behavior because a lot more parts of the social behavior can be uh, integrated into the game. So like um, the way piracy is in- integrated into the game is a good example of this, right? Piracy is an explicit part of the game, right? But it, the game doesn't make you be a pirate. It's just designed to encourage piracy by using the different levels of security, the different levels of like AI police force in the game. So for those of you who aren't familiar with EVE, there's different layers of space that get less and less police, essentially, as you expand out into kind of, you know, the outer territories that, that are like what's referred to as nullsec, where there's essentially no police. You could do whatever you want. You know, it's, it's Wild West out there. And so the idea is that creates this huge divergence of play that incorporates piracy into it, but in a way that like you don't have to participate in that. You can stay in in high sec, as they call it, or Jira or whatever, like these areas where it's just all everyone's all happy and there's and there's police everywhere and the cost of everything's super high. And it's 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 so reminiscent of so much dystopian fiction. It cracks me up. But uh but this idea that like they incorporated that without telling you to be a pirate. They're like, you can be, and there's pros and cons to it. But because they incorporated that, uh, now obviously when we go to the blockchain side, Dark Forest is an interesting example as well because they were like, hey, we're going to design the core rules or like what people often refer to as like the physics of the game, the blockchain and stuff like that. And then you can kind of do whatever you want with it. Obviously it helps if you design some of those to uh, like think ahead a little bit the way CCP did. Uh, But it's the same idea of like one single shared space and, and all that sort of stuff. And I think if you take some of those lessons from Eve, I think there's some valuable ones for the blockchain. And it, it's just, it's funny because it's like we went through the cycle with, with the web where everyone was building APIs for everything. Everything was open and permissible. 
And then over the last, like maybe it was 10 years, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to try and peg a specific date on it. We totally went away from that. You know, Facebook's API started getting terrible. APIs started dropping off Netflix and everywhere else, and everyone started gatekeeping like crazy. And so we totally went away from what was the open internet. And so like blockchain's now like this revival of that early API-driven internet where everyone could connect everything in whatever fashion they wanted and build cool stuff on top of it. And so I hope we don't go through that same cycle again where we start this way and then end up right back where we are with the Facebooks and the, uh, all the gatekeepers everywhere locking stuff to just these small little funnels of ability to access stuff based off of whether or not they like you. Um, I, I hope we go that way because like Eve's still around. Like It's proven that there is some sustainability in that. Uh, and that you can keep doing that, but you've got to stick to your guns and like actually have like your vision and stick to it and not just compromise it later for greed sake. Yeah. Very curious. But um, yeah, as you guys know, I'm a nerd and I enjoy thinking about the potential of these, you know, bleeding edge technologies. And so, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that rolls out and uh, how that, uh, what that results in. Good. I imagine it will result in new technology as well. I think I think we're we're not a, we're not done innovating in the blockchain, <clears throat> and I think you know we've seen like rollups weren't even like a thing that was really considered at first with like Ethereum, and then like later on Vitalik's like, oh, you know, maybe we should do rollups. Like, there's still new stuff to come, and like mm-hmm. I'm sure if we're still doing this podcast a few years from now, we'll be like, we didn't even think of this when we were talking about it before. Like, we didn't realize this next change was going to happen. At least I hope that right. Like that's that's what we're trying to do is is lead towards that idea that uh, there's still new tech left to be invented in this. Yeah. Some of the ZK technology that underpins ZK rollups has like the, the papers have been written or published six months ago. Yeah. And so all of this is still pretty emerging um, and pretty cutting edge, which will result in, in probably some, some technical mistakes or, you know, issues, problems. Um, but I, I, I always, I live in this environment where, you know, doing like an operation on a decentralized database is going to be marginally more expensive. It's always going to be more expensive, but it's going to be marginally more expensive than doing something on a centralized database. That's the assumption under which I live. Um, and absolutely right, Devin, you're right that there's still new technology being built. And I'm also pretty sure that a lot of this technology or like a large chunk of technology will be uh, invented by games-focused companies. To give you an example, one of our Fogdown members, um, uh, David Amore from Playment, he recently did a thread um, laying out what they've built. So they're building an on-chain game. They've they had some games, you know, earlier this year that came out, very simple. Up to now, they're building this on-chain MMO, and they're they've built a system to do like client-side um, zk bundling of transactions. So essentially, like you're you're doing you're issuing moves, and then um, all of your moves are bundled together when you click click like do this action, which, um, and so they're they're combined and bundled in this zk proof, and so that results in less computation and space being taken up on chain, which I found really interesting, and um, it's it's like one of these really cool examples of. Um, of you know how how games companies are actually innovating and, and taking the the user experience and the fun aspect of, of blockchain or experimenting uh, on that axis. I'm looking forward to it. I, I hope your excitement about on chain game stuff continues like to to translate into more stuff and like maybe eventually that's what the metaverse really has to be built on is this mm. idea of it's because otherwise it's not going to be truly interoperable or permissionless or whatever. 
until we like decentralize it fully. Because mm-hmm. there's that idea of like, there's two kinds of concepts of the metaverse. There's like the idea of like, oh, metaverse is just a, a renaming of virtual worlds and it's all ones we control. And then there's like the permissionless metaverse idea of like, well, we have to come up with interoperability that allows us to like have our things talk to each other and it's a bunch of different verses, you know, hence the, the metaverse or multiverse kind of concepts. And I think obviously blockchain stuff was proof of an idea around how you could sort of use cryptography and, and other math-based stuff that's more abstract to create a, a consensus, consensus mechanism for that sort of thing without it just being about this idea of like interoperable standards. And so maybe like, you know, as we evolve the technology of interoperability consensus stuff that evolves towards what supports enough of a standard for us to create metaverses on top of it. I know people are trying to like build their like virtual world stuff on it, but I don't mean virtual worlds. I mean this idea of like this true interoperability and and I think that permissionlessness and all that stuff has to be part of that. The internet was kind of an early example of that, right? Where we've got like the permissionlessness of the internet where everyone can like run servers and stuff. But there's, if you look at the way like law enforcement works, there's obviously choke points, right? It, it, It hasn't evolved to the, the true decentralization we love until we all like start building that mesh networks and stuff around our cities and like relays and other stuff and actually truly decentralize it. But I think it showed, uh, like there was a possibility to build something like that. And the internet was like the earliest, closest metaverse we've had to that idea, right? Of everyone could build their own web page and throw it up on the internet and they're all interconnected and they don't have to follow any standards per se, right? Like the browser kind of determines it, but we've had so many different protocols and standards and different things built on the internet and not everyone has to fully agree on them. It's just whatever client you use. And I think we have that same idea, like Dark Forest, like there's tons of different clients possible for the same shared sense of data. And I think that's maybe what we need to drive towards is this, this idea of like what we did with internet. All right. Any final thoughts, points you guys want to want to mention? I see you shaking your head. Fantastic. Good. All right. Um, great discussion, Devin, Phil. Thanks. Um, yeah, it was fun. And and these are strange times. And it feels like you know things are moving slower. So I guess you know this will slowly transition less into a news thing where oh this fundraise and and this company let, launched their you know early access uh, whatever um, and more into I guess you know oh, we've seen this or we've seen this trend over the past few weeks. And so, you know, let's discuss this and what could this, could this mean? Um, which is fun, you know, it's um, always exciting. Good. All right. Phil, Devin, thanks a lot for joining. Um, have a good evening. Um, Phil's going to bed soon. Devin's still staying up for like five hours, I guess, until 4 a.m. Um, I am, yeah, going to start my day. Listener, hope you enjoyed. And yeah, we look forward to speaking with you in the next episode. Ciao.